Well, we left off last week in our series in Genesis with Joseph as second in command in Egypt. And his brothers back for a second trip seeking relief from the famine that was ravaging the land. And if you remember, Joseph's brothers, out of anger, jealousy, hatred, had sold Joseph into slavery. And through a series of painful and fascinating events, Joseph ended up as the functional day-to-day ruler of one of the largest empires in the history of the world. He tested his brothers in a couple of different ways in our text from last Sunday, And we ended our time last week with Judah offering his life in the place of his brother Benjamin. His brothers still don't know who he is, and so in our sermon text for today, Joseph will reveal himself to his brothers. It would be to your benefit to have a Bible in front of you as our narrative does cover three chapters today, and I'll be skipping around a little as we work our way through And so we're going to begin this morning in Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. Remember, after the silver cup was discovered in Benjamin's sack, Judah speaks up in the beautiful gospel picture and offers his life in exchange for his brothers. And so we'll begin reading in Genesis 45 verse 1. This is God's word to us. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall, re- you shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin 
and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Pharaoh hears about what has happened, and he is pleased with what he hears. And he actually sends Joseph's brothers back with carts full of supplies, full of grain and other items from Egypt. And then we pick up the account in verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And then we arrive at chapter 46, starting in verse 1. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. And then the text goes into what is really a genealogy or an accounting of all of those who would make the trip to Egypt with Jacob. And when the caravan arrives in Egypt, we pick up the narrative in verse 28. It says, Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. So Joseph then prepares his family for the meeting that they're going to have with Pharaoh. There's an interesting sort of cultural detail that maybe gets buried in the text here that shows up a couple of times. We see it in verse 34 of chapter 46. And that's this, that in the eyes of the Egyptians, shepherds were detestable. Or maybe your translation uses a word like loathsome or an abomination. And of course, Joseph's brothers were all shepherds. And this is actually an important detail. We might just kind of read over it when we read through the text, but it's an important detail. And Joseph emphasizes it, I think, for a reason. Why would Joseph want to make sure that Pharaoh knew that, that the Hebrew people were shepherds? I think the most logical explanation is that by doing that, by establishing the fact that all these Hebrews who are coming in are, are shepherds, that they are an abomination, they're detestable, they're untouchable, it would ensure one thing. It would ensure that the Egyptians would never intermarry with them, that they would keep their distance. And of course, this was an important thing because it would prevent the Hebrews from ever intermarrying with the Egyptians. And we know that every time that has happened in the history of God's people, God's people always go from worshiping the one true God to worshiping the idols of the people that they intermarry with. 
And so this is a point of emphasis for Joseph and for Jacob as they approach Pharaoh and as they set up camp in Egypt, that they are not the same as the Egyptians. They are less than the Egyptians. They are, of course, we know just pilgrims in Egypt. So we pick up the account of Joseph, his brothers, and his father as they appear before Pharaoh in chapter 47, verse 3. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130 My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. And then today our text concludes with severe famine throughout the land. The Egyptians then are starting to experience the famine and they come to Joseph uh, to get food and they, in doing so, offer up everything that they have in exchange for food. We'll pick up in chapter 47, verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. And then jumping to verse 23, Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. And then the chapter concludes with the Hebrew people, God's people, prospering in the land. And Jacob makes Joseph promise him that when Jacob dies... He won't be buried in Egypt, but that he will be sent back home to be buried with his ancestors. It's a long sermon text. I warned you a couple weeks ago that these ones in the concluding chapters of Genesis were going to be long. But we've seen now how this particular part of the narrative unfolds. But what does it mean? What do we learn? What is God saying in this passage of scripture. Allow me to make several observations that I think are helpful for us as we consider what God has said in his word. The first one is this. When we recognize our place in God's mission, 
we become people of grace and forgiveness. Notice Joseph's response to his brothers. Verse 5. Says, Don't be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves. Think about those words for a minute. Think about how much grace, how much forgiveness is packed into just a few words. After years of pain, years in prison, years in slavery at the hands of his brothers, Joseph responds not just by offering them a sort of token forgiveness, but he truly extends grace. Joseph didn't just say, okay guys, I guess, I guess I'll forgive you. No, no, he's actually concerned. His heart is concerned with the sense of guilt that his brothers are carrying with them. He says, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves. I want you to notice the the difference between sort of obligatory forgiveness and true grace. What is it that allows Joseph to be at at this place, to be able to say these things, to be able to extend the grace that he's extending and of course it's what follows don't be distressed do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here now listen to this because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you Joseph sees and not only sees but he he truly believes that everything that's taken place everything that has happened in his life all of the pain all of the suffering that he's gone through is being used by God as part of his mission and his plan to save, to redeem. Just listen to these statements that Joseph makes. Chapter 45, verse 5, God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7, but God sent me ahead of you. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse 9, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Joseph recognizes that that God was using the tragedy in his life. God was using the pain and the the heartache that he experienced in life as part of God's very own redemptive plan. Joseph has, has a strong and resolute trust in the sovereign plan of God. So much so that he can say in verse 8, Hey guys, it wasn't even you that sent me here. This was all God's plan. It was God who sent me to Egypt. Now, Joseph didn't see the full picture of what God was doing. Joseph didn't have the New Testament in front of him. He couldn't see how this was all going to play out, but Joseph was trusting that God knew what he was doing. Joseph didn't see everything. He didn't know everything, but he he knew enough. He saw enough to recognize that, that his life was part of God's plan to redeem, to save. There's so much gospel, so much good news packed into those words for us. That wherever we find ourselves, whatever our circumstances, we have the freedom in Christ to look at our circumstances, to look at what we're going through, and to recognize that God is still in control even when it doesn't feel like it. And that God actually has the power, the ability to use the bad in our lives, the wicked, the the evil, the pain, the suffering in our lives to do good things. And we may never see it fully in this life, just like Joseph didn't. But God is 
doing something good. In every circumstance, in every situation, God is doing something good, whether we can see it or not. This is not the default human perspective. This isn't how we naturally think as human beings. We usually look at things one of two ways as humans. When it comes to the bad things, we say, you did this to me, right? We point outside. But then when it comes to the good things, we say, look at what I did. Look at what I've achieved. That's how we naturally operate as human beings. Placing blame for the bad things and taking credit for the good. But but Joseph doesn't take either of those approaches. Why? Because he recognizes that God is fully in control. And that God is up to something good. That he's at work. Joseph realizes that God would have been fully capable of thwarting, of derailing the plan of his brothers to sell him into slavery. God is powerful enough to have derailed that plan, right? God could have obliterated all the brothers on the spot. Joseph would have been just fine. But instead, God was going to use their evil plans, their wickedness, their selfishness, as part of his own good and redemptive purpose. And so because Joseph is is able to see this, he responds how? He responds with, with grace, with forgiveness. When we recognize our place in God's mission, when we recognize that God is doing something good here, we become people of grace, people of forgiveness. Or we can think of it the other way around. When we fail to recognize our place in God's mission, we withhold grace and forgiveness. Withholding grace and forgiveness is a product of of not seeing our place in God's mission. And ultimately, it's a product of not trusting and believing God. Of not giving ourselves over to to the sovereign rule of God over our lives. Or we might think of it this way. This might be helpful. When we understand our place in God's mission, we can do nothing other than to become people of grace and forgiveness. The natural fruit, the natural byproduct of seeing your life as part of God's mission, of God's plan to save and redeem the world, is that you naturally become a person of grace and forgiveness. Of course, this is all God's work within us, right? None of this comes naturally to us. And so it really forces us to wrestle with the question, what what do I do when I see within myself, when I observe within my own heart, a resistance to or an outright refusal to show grace, to show and extend forgiveness? When I look into the mirror of the text, when I allow God's word to interpret my life, when I see what Joseph did and I realize I am, I'm not a gracious person, what do I do? And the answer is, of course, to repent of my sin, to repent of my need to exact revenge, my need to be right, my need for restitution. The answer is always to repent, to ask God's help to trust him more trust that he is good, to trust that he's using whatever is in front of us today for our good. 
And perhaps more importantly, to ask God to help us see, to help us get a vision of his plan, of his desire to redeem the world and and to see our place within it. Here's the difficulty for many people when when it comes to this. Many Christians see the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us as an addition to our lives. Like Jesus is someone you add to your life to make you a more well-rounded person. So many people view the gospel. That he's a helpful partner in your mission to live your best life. And if that's how we view the gospel, if that's how we view what Jesus has done, we, we will never actually be people of grace and forgiveness unless it serves us. Because that's a mindset, that's, that's a worldview in which we are the center, right? We are the center of our own universe if that's how we're viewing the gospel. It's just an addition, just something that makes me better. You can't be a Christian and see yourself as the center of the universe. Think of Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8. All of these people gathered around Jesus. They, they want to follow him. They love the things that he has to say. And Jesus says something that's so offensive to our human nature, so offensive to our egos. Jesus says, Okay, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. That means give yourself over to death. Follow me. Then, then follow me. We repent of our tendency toward self-worship. We ask God to give us his heart, his eyes, to see our lives as part of his mission, and that always results, every time that's going to result in us being gracious. When we recognize our place in God's mission, we become people of grace and forgiveness. The second thing I want you to see today, I hope you noticed this in our text when we read through it, is that Jacob responds two ways, really, in worship and in blessing. The brothers return to Jacob, and they tell him that his son Joseph is alive. And how does he respond? Chapter 46, verse 1, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Jacob responds in worship to the Lord. This sacrificial worship put Jacob in in the right position, the right posture in relation to God. He, He comes into the presence of God and God responds by promising his protection, his presence, his blessing with Jacob as he goes to Egypt. And then skip forward to chapter 47. Jacob is in the presence of Pharaoh. And did you notice what Jacob did? Chapter 47, verse 7, it says, Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. And then this next line, after Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Think about those words. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And then just a few verses later, as Jacob leaves, verse 10, chapter 47, verse 10, then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. When he begins his conversation with Pharaoh and when he concludes, Jacob pronounces a blessing over Pharaoh. And I think we see here what God intends to be the posture of his people in relation to the world around us. When we see what God is doing, 
When we trust that God is in control, that his promises never fail, we are free to simply be a blessing wherever he has placed us. Jacob's response uh, of blessing just struck me this week as I was reflecting on our text, maybe because it's something that is so countercultural in American Christianity today. I've shared from this pulpit a number of times my concern over what seems to be the prevailing tone and tenor that I hear from many who claim to be Christian when it comes to the world around us, and in particular, those with whom we disagree. It's become increasingly popular to be cynical and even caustic and unnecessarily offensive in in interactions with, with both people of authority and with people with whom we disagree. This is a strange and perverse pleasure that many Christians have found in childish name-calling, in public disrespect. The intermarrying, we might say, of Christianity and politics, perhaps, has has resulted in this unchristian, anti-gospel, hopeless, fake religion for which I think the American church must repent. Because the reality is forgiven people, redeemed people, people who have received grace are a blessing to those around them. There's a question that's, that's worth us wrestling with today. And that question is this, do you leave blessing in your wake? Are the teacher, the restaurant server, the gas station cashier, the receptionist at City Hall, the state legislator, the bank teller, the librarian, are they better off? Are they blessed because of the interaction that they had with you? Are the people that come into contact with you on a daily basis, even those people with whom you fundamentally disagree on some important issues, are they better off because they were around you? You see, this is, this is the promise of God to Abraham, right? All the way back in Genesis 12, that was in like December when we, when we preached on that. Through Abraham's descendants, the entire world would be what? Blessed. The entire world would be blessed. And we know the fullness of that blessing is Jesus Christ, right? Through Jacob, as he visits the pagan emperor, the foreign nation of Egypt, Pharaoh, the ruler of that pagan empire was blessed, was given a blessing. Now, this this doesn't mean we don't have disagreements with the world around us. It doesn't mean we sit back and never confront evil that exists in our world. There were likely many areas with which Jacob's worldview and the worldview of Pharaoh would have clashed. Absolutely. But what it does mean is, is that I don't always have to prove that I'm right. Sometimes I can just be a blessing. Sometimes I can just encourage people. I I see the big picture of what God is doing, and I know that Jesus wins in the end. The end of the story is written. And whatever happens here and now, God is in control. God causes nations to rise, and he scatters nations. And I'm not responsible for fixing every problem that exists in our world. I'm not responsible for confronting every instance of evil that exists in our world. Sometimes I'm free to just be a blessing. 
to be a gospel presence, to be good news where God has placed me. Jacob's response in our text is to worship and then to bless those around him. There's something there that's worth us grabbing onto and leaving with this week. One more idea that comes up in our text that I want you to see, and that's this, that we have been saved to be servants. I want to direct your attention to the end of our text, starting in verse 23 of chapter 47. Uh, Chapter 47, verse 23. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground, but when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. And how do they respond? They say, you have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Uh, Much has been written about the arrangement that Joseph comes up with in chapter 47 with the people. In exchange for food, Joseph arranges a system in which the citizens sign over their land to the government and agree to work it and to give a share to Pharaoh. There have been all sorts of economic, political opinions that have been thrown out by preachers regarding this arrangement, but but I think they all miss the purpose. They all miss the mark on why this is in the text. I've said several times that Joseph is a type, a, a prefigurement of Christ. And that's exactly why this is in the text. Joseph is the mediator through whom the Egyptian people are saved, verse 25, and through whom they are ultimately made servants of Pharaoh. We might say that Joseph is the Savior. He's the Redeemer. He's the Deliverer. Carrying out the will and working for the glory and the benefit of Pharaoh. And here's what we see in our text. This is so important. It's far better to be a servant of a good king than to die in our freedom. This is a part of the Christian faith that's unpalatable for many Americans on both the right and the left. That when we trust in Jesus, we abandon our own claim over our lives. We abandon self-sovereignty. Peter called himself, he referred to himself as a slave or a servant of Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we were ransomed, we were purchased with the precious blood of Christ, that we don't belong to ourselves. And then in the next letter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, as he introduces himself, he actually introduces himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Or think about Paul's teaching on this. It's all over the New Testament. In Romans 14, for example, he says, None of us lives to himself alone. None of us dies to himself alone. In other words, you're you're not sovereign. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, You are not your own. You were bought with price. 
Or that famous saying from Matthew 25 that you've heard at funerals, well done, good and faithful servant, could be translated good and faithful slave. It's not just a nice comforting verse that we share at a funeral, but a a reminder that when we trust in Christ, we are no longer our own. We abandon our self-rule. What takes place during the famine in Egypt is not intended to be a lesson in economics. It's not a political statement from Moses. It's a picture pointing us forward to what the true and better Joseph would do. That when we come to him to be saved, we cease to be our own. We are saved to be servants. Jesus purchased you with his blood in order that you might deed everything over to God. Your entire life, your entire being is his. The imperfect Joseph saved and delivered the people of Egypt out of impending death into servanthood. And the true and better Joseph has saved you out of death into servanthood to God. And what we discover, what we're reminded of, is that it is far better to be a servant of a good king than to die in our freedom. Jesus died for you. Jesus purchased you with his blood. You belong now to God. And that's incredibly good news. It might be painful at times, right? Denying yourself is always painful. But it's good. And God is faithful. And the amazing thing is that we aren't just servants of God. We're also children of God. We're dearly loved servant children of the one true God. And he has promised that our sins are forgiven. That true freedom is actually found in being a servant. True freedom is actually found in denying yourself, in carrying your cross. And and so we respond in worship. Worshiping God for all that he has done, for loving us, for sending Jesus to die for us. We respond by offering up our lives to him and by being a blessing to all of those that he puts in our path today. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your son purchased us for you. That our lives, that all that we possess, truly belong to you. Lord, as your word has revealed our sin today, has shown a a light on our unbelief. We we turn to you in repentance. We're so grateful for the promise that the true and better Joseph shed his blood on the cross to redeem us, to save us, to deliver us. And so we join our voices with those Egyptians who cried out to Joseph saying, you have saved us. Give us deep and abiding assurance of all that you've done for us as we receive this promise, as we receive the guarantee of our forgiveness in the Lord's Supper this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.